0: There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the One Hots podcast. I'm
0: your host, Ellen, and I'm joined today by our co-host, Sean Lee, and our guest, Andrew Chow, who is the co-founder and CEO at Boba Guys. For those of you who haven't tried Boba Guys, it's now a chain across the United States that sells really high-quality boba milk tea. And as far as I can tell, it's been a big hit for a while now, and they're not slowing down. Thanks, Andrew, and very excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. Go Bears. Go Bears. Go Bears. Could you share your origin story and how you grew up? Yeah, there's a decent amount on the internet, not to be like, we have a book, mm-hmm. but we, we have a, now a best-selling book we wrote with Penguin Random House. It's called The Boba Book. I think it really started actually roughly around Cal. I'm a Jersey kid that moved to California, and I went to Cal thinking I was going to be a doctor. I'm Chinese, Taiwanese, so many people with my ethnic background, I think it was very common. MCB major, but I really fell in love with sociology. And Berkeley happened to have one of the best social departments in the entire world, still it does the best, actually. I really honed my skill of just like understanding systems and people and some people will say commercialized sociology is marketing, which is what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. So out of school when I graduated Cal, I Went to a company called Target Corporation. It was back then actually not as popular as it is now. It was in the middle of rebranding. It was really Dayton Hudson's and they own Marshall Fields, an apartment store and Mervin's. And I really learned my marketing chops. I was in their, they call it EIT, executive and training program. So I got my first job out of the Cal Career Center. So really, really grateful. I remember it was super competitive. So I always thought, okay, maybe that's me. I got the job that everybody wanted and maybe I'm going to be a great marketer. And I'd like to say that was my first half of my career. I did a lot of marketing at Target, at Walmart. Walmart kind of headhunted me. They stole me away. And I did that. Then I went back to Haas, actually, for my MBA. And it was weird to go back. I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to go back to grad school to do something different from marketing. I really did think I was going to be a venture capital guy. So at Haas, there's something called Haas Venture Fellows. So I did some of that. And I did some stuff abroad. But I really... I don't know what it is, but I always had this desire to do something really related to culture and people. And I think that's where my sociology background came out, Hmm. but I didn't want to go to good schools and then be like overly an activist or something like that. I just, I wanted to make change, but I felt like I had all this business training. Could I do it through economics? Mm -hmm. So I grew up pretty poor. I was lower middle income when I was growing up as a kid in Jersey. When I moved here, I had my two grandmas, my grandpa An aunt, another aunt, and her two children all live in four bedrooms in in South San Francisco, New Jersey. When there's like a TV show called Full House, it was a full house. (laughs) We had really good family dynamics to this day. So I really loved the idea that maybe through economic mobility, you can kind of chase the dream. So if you know my profile, I'm definitely one of those people that's like, you can be anything. I know people say the system is oppressing and there is, there's a lot of systemic injustice. I'm not gonna get overly kind of like woke, especially at Berkeley, but we all know that, that is true. But to say that you can't make something out of yourself and make your situation better, and hopefully my kids will be better than me, I think you have to have that hope. I think maybe right now the country, America, I think half the country lost that hope. They believed the American dream's dead. I think it just changed and it's harder, but I'm a, an embodiment. My dad's a refugee, my mom's an immigrant, they both were immigrants, but my dad's actually a refugee. So came here with nothing. And in one generation, I started this company that's worth quite a bit. And home grew that. So for those who don't know, well, what, what did I actually start? What is boba? And it's hard to do this on a podcast. So how do I describe it? It's like saying you take your blue bottle coffee, but make that matcha or make it something tea-based and then take gummy bears and you put gummy bears in your matcha. That's kind of like the best way I would describe it. And it's a drink that 2 billion people drink. In America, we think all everything's exotic, not in Asia. Milk tea has been everywhere in Japan and Southeast Asia and in, in South Asia, Hong Kong. So I think we're just taking a milk tea tradition and putting that together with a, I would call it like a Southeast Asian dessert culture, a lot of cassava, which is what boba's made out of. So it's, it's a root vegetable. So think of potatoes in America, just tastier. And then you put that into a drink and that's what we're known for. I mean, we're known for it actually more than that, but for all intents and purposes, you know, we have just under 20 cafes. We closed a couple during the pandemic, but generally speaking, we have 20 cafes. We have a restaurant group side. We have a factory. So everything you learn at Haas about vertical integration, I paid very close attention and I was convinced that vertical integration was the way. People ask, well, why did you start a factory so early? And I honestly think that was maybe a couple of case studies that I really enjoyed that was about vertical integration that seeded that idea.
1: You guys manufacture your own straws, right? We don't, actually. We thought about it, actually. I was wondering about that. We helped bring the straws technology
0: to America. That is true. It's a little political, but here's really what happened. I don't really have forums to talk about this, so I'm glad you guys asked about the straws. And I think 2016, we had heard that my friends in Taiwan were like we're going to be the first place in the world to go zero waste or single use plastics get rid of them yeah and i was like how do you do that like cups are everywhere plastic bags are everywhere china had talked about it because people didn't understand china was they were refuting recycling that's right you know they used to recycle a lot of the us stuff and so there was already kind of this asian sustainability wave that americans cannot comprehend but i do think nowadays i think they lead more than even america we have a very big single use waste problem in america I think Taiwan said, oh, by 2030, we'll, we'll ban single-use plastics. And so we were based in San Francisco. We had heard rumblings that San Francisco wanted to start something similar. Mm-hmm. And I happen to know, her name is Katie Tang, a supervisor here, a district supervisor. She was one of, I think, 11 or 9 supervisors in San Francisco. She's out of the Sunset District. And she wanted to think about writing a plastic straw ban. But people were always so scared, especially small businesses, of something that sounds like a straw ban especially boba because the boba world uses big kind of unique straws so a ban would actually hurt it so her legislative aide i think Ashley summers i still remember she's listening she's a great person she was like how do i write this bill can you help us write that ordinance so it doesn't hurt small business they really did come with that in mind without sounding flattering they're like andrew you're like one of the most level-headed people you're you're both small business and also business-minded but of the community would you help us craft this thing so it's not overly dangerous and so i was like okay what are you doing like tell me what it's about so over the six months we helped craft that ordinance i remember giving feedback on things like it may affect people with disabilities and they didn't even know but my mom's sister my aunt linda was disabled so i knew i happened to have random knowledge about straws and people in the disabled community so putting that kind of into ordinance and saying hey there's flexibility don't be scared we're not trying to harm anybody but with there's a greater good here. And it's the beginning of a larger sustainability movement because people are, I know this is what happened. It exactly happened. They're going to say, what does that do for the overarching sustainability movement? Because if you ban straws, it's not going to do that much damage. And I'm like, it's a culture issue. Straws just happened to be a cultural take. But I had also known that there was a new technology because they had pitched us bamboo straws Mm -hmm. because Taiwan was already ahead in this little place called Nanto, which is this part of the island of Taiwan. People don't know it's a tropical island. Americans mm-hmm. don't really think that yeah. far ahead, they don't travel. And <laughs> I was like, no, there's this technology because everybody thought if you ban straws, it's gonna be paper as a replacement. Mm. And I was like, no, 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 there's this new technology out there. Now this is where you get business and politics that commingle. technically wasn't approved by the environmental kind of groups out in the West, technically like California in america because they're like i've never seen this straw technology like this what if it has toxic substances i said ashley and and kitty i was like i think there's a technology that is better than paper you need to clear it get your sf environment agency to kind of clear it and they're gonna make a big stink which they did they're like i don't i've never seen this technology but you gotta you gotta give small businesses a chance to kind of like not have them hurt their business So that's really what happened. I actually rarely explained that whole story. And they were very, I mean, in most times the government kind of doesn't get what's going on. I just think in this case, they truly did because that ban technically was the blueprint of future cities ordinances. So SF usually is one of the most liberal places and progressive places in in the world. And so it did set the stage, which is why I wanted to do it. We actually announced it at ABOBA Guides. It was the mayor it was katie tang there's a whole picture and they announced the whole thing and press conference at our boba shop which is the craziest thing now looking back this was four years ago we got a lot of heat especially libertarians and people don't like kind of government intervention i'm quote hamilton here if you stand for nothing what will you fall for and i felt like boba guys which we'll get to later is we're completely independent i have a million dollars of friends and family but we have arguably well my revenue is in like eight digits after maybe Panda Express and Patagonia and a handful of other companies, in food world, there's a very few independent companies mm. that are this large and independent. My co-founder and I are the only ones on the board. And especially after business school, you learn how much, shout out to uh, Professor Mclaney who teaches nonprofit boards, any board, nonprofit or profit can control you. And so I've had a board, I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted us to go this hard on a plastic straw ban or anything else we do about social causes. But I don't have a board. I'll do whatever I want, and that's what I didn't think people don't understand.
1: The bamboo straw thing was a huge draw and appeal. I just remember when I heard about boba guys when we went to go go try it out for the first time. I was like, oh, I want to see what this bamboo straw is about.
0: <laughs> the texture when we tested it, it was weird. I mean, in business school and in just school in general, it's very theoretical, especially some place like Berkeley. Yeah, I've taught classes at both Stanford, Berkeley, entrepreneurship and marketing. I do think that we lack a little bit of like the vocational trade skills. Basic things like how do you test a product? In a HBS case study, you're not going to learn how to truly call BS. Can you really call bullshit on someone's product? Like, oh, it's miraculous. It has all these adaptogens or it has, it can do wonders. It's biodegradable. That's not in a case study that's on paper. In real life, somebody could be BSing you. Mm. And I think that's what you don't learn about business. I always tell people, we have a lot of 400 employees. We call them team members. And the number one thing I try to teach, especially the young leaders, I say is like, if you want to study business and you want to be a great leader in business. The number one skill you're going to need to have is EQ people skills. And under EQ, you need to have a really good BS detector. You need to know when somebody's like pretending they're sick or they said they did it, but they didn't really do it. You need to really find that out because they're going to respect you. They really will. Because people know like, it's very hard to pull a fast one on me or my co-founder because I think we're very similar in that
1: way. Back on the straw question, do you also sell to other boba stores or do you use the straws within your own stores only?
0: So us alone, we're big. At the time, we only had like nine stores. We single-handedly couldn't bring straws into America. Mm-hmm. Like, We just wouldn't have that kind of buying power. So you have to convince what you call distributors, the people who carry like cups, straws, supplies for restaurants to carry them. So I'd actually have the distributors carry them and distributors are going to be like, well, who else is going to carry straws? Boba guys is really progressive, but not everybody else is. So who else are going to be the buyer? Yeah. So what was really hard was I had to create demand from cafes across the country that were also likely going to be in cities that need a sustainable straw solution that didn't want paper. Pay a little bit more because the bamboo straws are more expensive than paper, but also be willing to take on the storytelling risk and all the other risk of just switching over. And so it was like a two-front battle. One, I had to actually tell the public, this is why we're going with straws. On the other side, I actually had to convince the supply chain to get it in, so a whole container. So shouts to David, who runs Finale Foods, and Jim, who runs KGP, they're in LA and Northern California. And they were the first two guys that really, in distributors that really said, okay, fine, I'm betting that you're going to be able to create demand. So if you're wondering why I created a whole marketing campaign and a whole video around it, it was because I was actually trying to convince the rest of the cafe industry, not just Boba, but the rest of the cafe industry, coffee shops too, to carry these straws. And I'd like to say we were successful. If you want to know one truly deep cut A bunch of our friends, they wanted to kind of rebuild the island of Taiwan. This is not a Taiwan podcast, but the island itself, just like many places in Asia and up and coming, you know, in business school, you talk about brick, right? Brazil, Russia, India, China. You talk about these developing worlds where you want to give them a new industry, GDP. Historically, Taiwan used to make a lot of manufacturing, electronics, semiconductors, but that's when my mom grew up there in Daan, which is Taipei. But I was also, I remember, randomly put on the sister committee of Taipei because Taipei is the sister city of San Francisco, which is where I'm out of. Mm-hmm. And I remember hosting the Diplomats. And one of them said, we need to figure out how entrepreneurs like you, Andrew, should figure out how to give more business and add to the GDP of Taiwan. Well, I thought in the back of my mind, if we make more things manufactured out of Taiwan. So there was multiple technologies that came out of Asia. There was sugarcane straws. From Southeast Asia, there's Taiwan, there's rice straws. There's a lot of different straws. I sized the market. I think to this day, it might be about $5 billion. I said, if I can convince Americans that bamboo straws and sugarcane is right after that, both out of Taiwan, are the future of sustainable straw technology, we might actually be able to give a ton of jobs. And again, that was four years ago. Here we are. It's still around, still really prominent, and it's really growing. So one of the big companies we work with is called Yali Straw, Yali they always are like, oh, I remember when Boba guys single-handedly almost did it. And that's what people don't understand. People think it's like a brand thing, but people think creating a cool brand is hard. That's hard, but it's actually not that hard. You know what's really hard? Convincing landlords who don't know what Boba is, that we belong next to a blue bottle and a Starbucks and a Jamba Juice. That is really hard. Hmm. Pitching them, Mm -hmm. getting a competitive rate. And even if they said, fine, I can lease this space to you. Then the next question is, I want the same price as them. Otherwise, I'm going to overpay and I'll go out of business. And we did that for 10 years when we started our first store in 2011. Really, our first store was 2012 when we negotiated the lease. But we did a pop-up for the first year. But the nine years where we convinced landlords to put us next to these, what you call in these A-prime locations in San Ramon, Palo Alto, Culver City, Long Beach, New York City, that's where we all go. That is, I think, much harder. So that's what they don't teach you in business school. You don't do an HBS case or just a case study on how do you convince landlords that are, quote unquote, prejudiced? <laughs> I don't even know how you say it in 2021. I mean, there's race in there. I don't want to say that, but there is. I'm like, you don't say this to an Australian coffee shop. Why do you say it to me? Why do you ask me these questions? Yeah. You see my numbers. Our numbers are better than Bluestone Lane, Phil's Blue Bottle. But you don't treat me like that. I'm not on the cover of Fast Company. I don't like be on covers. But in general, I don't get those calls. I get the call on, hey, it's such an exotic drink. Teach me about it. That's the call I get. Not our numbers are better than every coffee company out there, which Mm -hmm. is true. We have high margin product. People are listening on the podcast, especially Haas. People are like, well, I don't believe you. I'm like, well, look it up. It's out there. People know we were thinking about a Series A. But here's why. It's very easy. Drinks are very high margin. Mm -hmm. But Boba, we convince people to drink Boba anytime, anywhere, any day. So coffee shops, you open at 8, you close at 3. That's seven hours max of high margin. Boba shops, we open at 9, 11 a.m. And we close at 10. That's 12 hours. I have an extra five hours on these people. And I sell a lot of merch. Boba Guys does do branding really well. That's because that's my core background. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where Professor Lynn Upshaw, now retired. Thank you, Professor Lynn Upshaw. You know, you learn how to tell stories, stand for something, and really hit technical, like integrated marketing communications. That is the stuff that business school does teach you. I think put it all together. I don't ever actually, by the way, have a forum to ever say this stuff. When I usually do podcasts, it's always about food or maybe yeah. being Asian. This is the first time where... If you checked under the hood, I did everything they taught you in business school. And I think it was a lot of money. I think some days I don't need that to open a boba shop, but I think now as a CEO, 400 people, company that's worth arguably 50, $80 million, depending on how you give my multiple. <laughs> it's funny, they give coffee shops a higher revenue multiple than they give a boba shop. And I'm like, I'm vertically integrated. You guys are crazy. Again, I'm not going to call it what it is, but I, I think a lot of it is slight prejudice. It's ignorance. And again, me being on the flip side, I, I when I... Did venture capital and now i'm an angel investor and i invest all the time i'm always looking at, i'm like why is your valuation this you like you're selling yourself short it's just because westerners like americans don't know it well if your numbers are good you should just be more confident and i, I tell a lot of entrepreneurs and i mentor a lot of them especially people from marginalized communities women by poc you know again i'm not trying to get woke i'm not really into that wokeness stuff but i believe that there is bias and prejudice definitely in business that People don't want to talk about. We're not perfect, but we're trying to fight the good fight. We're not going to do that much damage in one generation. It takes multi-generational to kind of move the whole industry.
1: This is what the One House podcast is about: <laughs> getting the exclusives yeah, on what other people are asking. This
0: one. <laughs> I truly, I'm so grateful. I rarely get to kind of show the side of our company and me, and we do it for culture. But I'd yeah. like to say we also run a pretty good company despite what the internet says. I hate the internet. I don't like the media. <laughs> <laughs> but you rely
1: so much on it, right? To become bigger.
0: If you follow really closely, I refuse to do media interviews nowadays. I only do podcasts. Podcasts is long form, but when there was a boba shortage or when there was a lot of Asian hate or there was small business loans and stuff like that, we're kind of a media magnet. You can make up a lie about us and they'll print it it's just because it gets clickbait. And so we don't have a publicist or PR, but... What I've heard from my friends is you're big enough that you don't even need anyone. And Mm -hmm. so that's why we haven't been playing with media because I truly believe it's a whole separate topic. Social media specifically does more harm than good. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of bad people with mics. And I think that's why we are where we are. I think great journalists, I'm all for. I have a lot of friends. You know, I, When I was at Cal, I was on the board of the Daily California, the Daily Cal, for eight years. In Berkeley undergrad, I worked at the Daily Cal for four years. So I have a very strong opinion about media because I grew up in it, but social media didn't really exist. It was like Friendster and Zanga yeah. back then. <laughs> now it, the way that people use it is so toxic. We haven't really figured out how to wield it. It's funny on that topic. My co-founder and I, if you look at our Instagram right now, Mm -hmm. there's this boba shortage that the world's going through. The United States more because we have a really weird port situation, but we are going definitely through a shortage and across all supply parts of the supply chain. But people think there's this rumor that boba guys made it up. I'm like, no, if you have some business background, you'll know that we didn't make it up. But it just means that when there's a shortage, you ration and there's scarcity. When there's a water shortage, it doesn't mean there's no water that exists. It just means that it's rationed and it may be in and out and it's volatile. Well, if you look at our Instagram, we got so annoyed at the media because they were making up all these random stories. We just started posting our own. And it's so funny. People were reposting us. To this day, our own writing, our own Instagram Live where I, I interviewed somebody in a supply chain. And it's almost like we became our own media agency. So my co-founder and I have been laughing because we're getting, we get tagged a lot on Instagram. And they're like, yeah, if there's a shortage, read this post and check out this one hour interview on Boba Guys. And it's like treating us like this random point of truth. And I'm like, with a one hour Instagram live, you can't make it up. There's no like editing. So like, unless you discredit my supplier and my logistics partner and me at the same time, and we're experts, very few Boba shops in the whole country are almost none are vertically integrated like us. So I have no reason to lie, honestly. So I think that's actually been really funny. I think more companies are doing that, by the way. More companies that have their own platform are treating themselves as their own media company. yeah. Which is a very interesting to think about, which is very scary in my opinion. But we really don't act that way unless this boba shortage thing came up again.
1: Yeah, that's the tricky thing with technology in the past decade. We've shifted from like almost like a value system into an attention economy, as they call it.
0: Mm, Tell me more of that. For your listeners, at home, you. your listeners <laughs> at home, let me interview
1: you. I mean, this is something I've been looking a lot into because of the podcasting startup that we're doing and the fundraising that we're doing. But it's this idea that the rise of Instagram, especially, and TikTok and whatnots, has created this attention economy because everything is free to the end user. And so what is it costing us? The cost is the attention. And who's paying for this attention? Well, it's all the advertisers. Which is why you're seeing this shift right now. People are starting to catch on. You see Neva, one of the yeah. original you know, Google search of people, come out and say, hey, I'm going to create a subscription-based search engine. No ads, private. Even with creators, the creator space, you're seeing Apple and Spotify, Substack, Ghost, all these platforms saying, hey, you know what, instead of delivering ads, let's just have individual listeners subscribe to you. But that's what I'm talking about is there is definitely a growing backlash against the attention economy that people are realizing, hey, we're paying not with our money, but we're paying with our, our time. And time is worth Love it a lot. More.
0: Well, I was on a social media fast for much of the pandemic and it was just too much going on. And um, there was a documentary that I didn't know went viral because <laughs> I didn't have social media. I swear to God. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> it was called Social Dilemma.
1: Yeah. Heard about it on Netflix. Yeah. It
0: was on Netflix. It was so good, and then I'm like, I would see some people on Zoom. I'd still like talk to friends and text them. i be like, Have you seen this? And they're like, Yeah, Andrew, it's like gone viral. I was like, Oh, I don't know what's going viral nowadays. But I thought that was something, and a lot of people spoke out about that. I think it's all true. I think we haven't figured it out. I think we will figure it out. But I think I'm glad that documentaries like that, or what you talked about, I just learned today, the tension economy. I think people are trying to figure out how to live a more fulfilled or whole life, a real life, not this kind of digital life. And I think Facebook's getting rid of view counts and they're treating comments. So I think even Facebook, because they're getting so much backlash, is trying to solve it too. And I give anybody who recognizes it and trying to solve it, that's at least acknowledging the problem. And that's the first step, right? Yeah. It's not denial, especially Haas. Also a professor emeritus now, I'm shouting out to all my professors. So they're like, Andrew was such a rebel in school. I was saying before the podcast, Thank you for everybody who nominated me. I think I won the question the status quo award a couple times or something. And I don't remember, but I'm like, why do I keep on getting nominated? It's because like I'm a random MBA that started a boba shop. I know why, maybe optically. But shouts to all my professors. Frank Vogel. Professor Vogel taught ethics and he's renowned in Kelly McLaney, Frank Schultz, Professor Schultz. All these people that I had, those are grad school, and then even undergrad, you know, Arlie Hochschild, Robert Reich, Mary Kelsey. I did an honors thesis in sociology. You can tell I kind of talk like a sociologist. Shouts to all of them because they helped mold me into this kind of like very critical mind where when you get your platform, you have to understand, okay, what are you going to do with it? Because I do believe power corrupts. I believe fame will fade. And I've seen so many people close to me, including some very well-known people, pass away because they ate them alive. Hmm. And that's what nobody talks about. I talk a lot. If you guys follow my Instagram Ever since my book came out, I got this cool, fancy blue check, and I Penguin around my house gets me on all these interviews. And one thing I boldly have been embracing a lot more, originally it was tough, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan, is vulnerability. We're taught in business school to be like, oh, this alpha, you know, a lot, I'm like an alpha minus. I don't think I'm a true alpha alpha the way people think about it, but I do kind of run my own kind of world, but I'm soft. I love rom coms and I love Brene Brown, <laughs> and I cry. And when I was an undergrad, I used to think that was dangerous. That showed weakness. That's when I was an undergrad. Then I went back to business school. Then they talk about Daniel Goldman, EQ, mm-hmm. and then Brene Brown got really hot. I graduated MBA 11. And so Brene Brown was like 2013, TED Talk. And then I've been, ever since my company grew, I met her actually at a Inc. Magazine conference. We were one of the fastest growing companies, still are in the U.S., and she was a speaker. And I'm the only dude who goes to her workshop. That's number one. At the time, only dude is 2018, I think. And I was in Palm Springs. And I remember telling my wife, Brene Brown's here. And she knows how much I love Brene Brown. I said, I'm going to go to her workshop. And then afterwards, my wife goes, how was it the workshop? And I was like, I was the only dude there. And I waited in line for half an hour to talk to her. And I have this bookshelf that the podcast people listening can't see. But behind me, I have all these books. I have this, it looks like Belle in Beauty and the Beast, where she's swinging. There's this yeah. ladder on his bookshelf that I'm describing where she goes, there goes the baker into town like always. That's what I'm trying to describe. I'm painting a picture for the podcast listeners. And then in these books, if you look closely, there's to Lead from Brene Brown, Gifts of Imperfection, Rising Strong. So I think that's another thing I would love listeners to over time embrace is that like with social media, everything's transparent. So if you got dirt on you and people are going to make stuff up about you anyways, you might as well then just be vulnerable and be real forget vulnerable. Not everybody has to be vulnerable, vulnerable. Like not everybody's like an open book. But if you are someone that is vulnerable, be vulnerable. If you're someone that you're more ultra rational, like Myers-Briggs, or you're like an NT type, just be you. Be unapologetic and be you.
1: I mean, what you're getting at is what they teach at Haas now, authentic leadership, which is something that a lot of soft skills are taught these days, especially around leadership communication. That's actually where It really needs to come out in terms of being vulnerable or being authentic is how you communicate with your team and those around you yeah
0: is mark rittenberg still yeah uh, he's the one that
1: teaches leadership communications
0: oh (laughs) yeah i was one of his gsis i only did it for one year you learn a lot about yourself because especially when you record yourself you you come off a certain way okay Mm -hmm. i'm like oh am i too preachy am i not relatable and that's where I think Mark Greenberg, he would always be like, the theater. Yes. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> Curtains like, up. Like, Curtains <laughs> up. Oh, my gosh. But this is only Haas inside. People who are prospective Haas are going to be like, I don't This school's really quirky. No,
1: no, no. They're really going to want to come here now because <laughs> just see how real we are, how human we are.
0: <laughs> you know what's so funny? Being a CEO is a lot of acting. It's a lot of improv because there are days where I'm doing a town hall and somebody's asking some off-the-wall questions. So I honor it, I don't dodge questions, but the acting, the honing in, like sometimes they wanna like hit you with a gotcha question, or you have to kind of like, not be poker face, but understand where they're coming from and, yeah. and play the role, quote-unquote. That's where I do think people don't talk about also in business school, where I think some of the best training I've had that's been really handy is probably me doing improv, because I do so many talks at colleges, and I run my leadership meetings in town halls, I generally have seen every angle of every single hard topic. Andrew, what do you think about gentrification? Is capitalism bad? Is it intentions or impact? And I'm like, let me go one further. Are we going to talk about Kantian ethics? Are we going to talk about Aristotelian ethics? Because I'm training the classics. I'm like, are we going to go there? And then the 20-year-old kids are like, oh, my professor didn't teach that. And I'm like, no, they didn't. And I'm like, so (laughs) if you want to play that game, I'll go there. But you're talking to someone who really loves this stuff. And that's where I do think I have most of my team. That's why we hire for a certain way. Like, they're very open minded. They're like, Andrew, like you mentioned, I'm a big fan of Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan Haidt is known for moral foundations theory. Yep. And he talks about, oh, you guys know Jonathan Haidt?
1: It was in, actually it was in my ethics class that was brought up. What? Yeah.
0: Bravo. They, he's in <laughs> NYU. For those who don't know, let Google Calling of the American Mind, but he's an NYU professor. I think his book, Calling of the American Mind, is a little bit too provocative sometimes, but he has a more nuanced theory, which is, the basis of that but i think it's just very much more academic where it's called moral foundations theory and it's about mm-hmm. the evolution of ethics wow you're like one of the only people sean
1: that's ever <laughs> i think new york has a special connection with berkeley too because of the whole columbia berkeley oh yeah and yeah, but true. also one of our posses scott galloway he's a he's a mm. pretty prominent professor at uh at oh, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah my dream is actually people people do ask, what do you do post Boba guys? I tell people I'm a founder. I'm not a CEO. Yeah. After like 30, 40 stores, that's why I think I am likely going to raise a series A. I might want to teach. People hear me. They're like, oh yeah, that guy sounds like... <laughs> I, I do. I want to maybe combine like ethics and branding together, yeah. which are like two of my favorite topics.
1: Oh, yeah. That sounds very interesting. Because I, I feel like yeah. a lot of marketing is not very ethical at all. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Everybody is a brand. A politician is a brand. You guys are a brand. Before you walk into a room, you have a reputation. Yeah. Your reputation is your brand. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I have this kind of burning question for a couple of reasons. One, I've been wanting to ask about, you know, I, I noticed from your LinkedIn that when you started Boba Guys, you were still working full-time. So this is kind of like your side hustle, or maybe the full-time gig was your side hustle and boba guys your main <laughs> hustle. But uh, but the other thing is the challenges that come with doing that. And I'm asking you because when I started my first business, I was working a full-time job. And also taking into consideration, it is mental health awareness month on top of AAPI month. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question around mental health as a founder, having gone through all those things and then having to act now in some ways as a CEO. What are some challenges that you deal with and how do you overcome them? So much.
0: Every founder got to get a therapist, number one. <laughs> if you can afford one, get one ASAP. I'll share something that I, I never share. I don't even know when to share it. I haven't really talked about it publicly and I don't even know if I'm going to get emotional. I knew Tony Shea.
2: Mm.
0: I know a lot of founders, just a lot of them that have Bay Area roots. And I have a quote some people use. I always say, founders treat their companies as the purest form of therapy. If you think about it, just think about the most famous founders the ones that everybody knows. Not that every founder has to be famous, but I'm just like, think about the ones that people know the archetype. Steve Jobs took his passion and he just channeled it, his perfectionism into his company, Steve Jobs. Elon, very similar. Tony. Tony Shea. Zappos was his human experiment. He would openly talk about that. When I used to talk to him and either see him in Vegas or if he comes back to San Francisco, there's this wavelength of what motivates people. As long as they're happy, Mm -hmm. they're going to be fine. And it's really complex. And there's conversations that founders need to have that they don't have. Not to say like I mentor a lot of people and I get mentor. I have three really amazing mentors I talk to almost every other week. I mentor a handful too. And the number one thing I always talk about is where's your mind at? Where's your heart at? The question that usually people want to talk about is, well, should I raise money or should I invest in this? When do I get an HR person and all that kind of stuff? That's an easy, honestly, that's a question sometimes you can even do via email. The questions that humans need is, are my needs being met? Are my expectations being met? Are my feelings seen? The number one thing that hurts, I think most founders, because it happened to me, is when people dehumanize founders and leaders. Number one thing will happen, especially if you get big. I got dehumanized in the media. You can just read Google Boba guys and they they make up stories about you. And I'm going to tell you 99% is lies almost always. It's because people kind of project a lot. And there's a lot of people who, especially people out of Berkeley, like we're trained to generally do good. So at least the intentions are good. We don't intentionally try to oppress or exploit or whatever. Most of us are trained that way, but the media and people like kind of rewire it. And then it's a bunch of, there's two truths. There's your truth, my truth, and the real truth. What gets printed is one person's truth, not the real objective truth. A lot of times that's when they villainize CEO founders people who come out of Haas, come out of top business schools, people who just run things. If you ask the population right now, do you like your boss? Majority of the people say, don't like my boss. Like that's why horrible bosses, there's two horrible bosses, one and horrible bosses, two. That's why there's two movies about the same topic. (laughs) Because people watch it. Because everybody's had a bad boss. Yeah. Everybody likes to think they could do their job better than a boss. And CEO is the epitome of all that. Put all the way at the top. And... Think about that. And then your name ends up in the paper. They say you got drug problems. Thankfully, I don't have drug problems, but I have anxiety. I have really bad anxiety, really, really bad anxiety. That's why I turned off social media for a while Mm -hmm. because I'm an empath, which is also bad for me, at least, because I always care too much. Mm -hmm. I'm very sensitive to how my company feels. So I think I'm overly loyal. That's actually what I got called out on. People say, Andrew should fire quicker. And I learned the hard way that I should have let go of people quicker. Mm-hmm. So I think those things show up. So in mental health, it's anxiety, it's trauma. So I had a therapist that had to treat me for a certain trauma that I'm just going to say it, that my employees said to me, thinking it didn't hurt me. I literally had an employee, I'll say this, I can say it now objectively. Six months ago, I probably would have not said this objectively. I swear, I had an employee say verbatim because they told my business partner. So my business partner, Duki Hong from the restaurant group knows this, said, what could I do to possibly hurt Andrew anyways. This is about a lie that they said. Even if it was maybe truth or untrue, if even if I did take it back, what could I possibly do to hurt him? Mm. That broke my heart. First time I heard it, I actually cried. I don't cry over business. Yeah, I just was like, wow. I was so shocked that it actually broke me. My wife will remember that night. My wife was there too, because yeah. we were talking about what was said in news and stuff. And I was like, that doesn't tell you human nature now. I don't know what will. Hmm. And it's insane. I had a good friend who ran a company, a beauty company, that they were making up lies about her. And I I generally am a little bit like a coach feeling mentor. I generally get the calls on, Andrew, I feel sad or da, da, da. If you follow my Instagram, that's kind of what I'm known for, which I'm not trying to be known for. I'm just real. That's just kind of, you can tell by the way I talk. So my friend Leah calls and she is super sad. And let's just say she's emotional because there's a lot of public statements about her and that's not true and misinterpreted. And she's a great person, but she's hurt. And the first thing I said, more than anything, you got to go get yourself a therapist. I'm going to tell you, people will never understand. They're always going to say, you're the CEO, you're the founder, boo hoo, you have X amount of money, you started X, you have this quote unquote empire, whatever you want to say, that's what they'll always say. Therefore, you're not human to them. It is sadly Tell as old as time. It's have and have nots. It's A lot of it is the root sin. It's like envy. It's about greed. It's about, well, there's all these great studies. And I even see it on my team and they're amazing people. They're perfectly happy. And then they secretly maybe think somebody else got a promotion or whatever. And then it ruins the whole dynamic in a store. And it's not true. When you dig in, I have my HR team dig in. They figure out it was somebody's misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. But the misunderstanding led to believe that somebody else got one up. And it was jealousy when two weeks prior, 360 review, everything was great. Yeah, Somebody's going to say, well, they didn't maybe express something. No, 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 no. There's when you know real truth and when it's truly holding back. It's this person wears their heart on their sleeves. They just didn't feel it. And somebody made them feel a certain way. So I think that's where I wish leaders really thought about more and future leaders have more empathy for. Because I think everybody wants to be a future leader. A lot of people do. And I think people don't, know what they're signing up for. Being a CEO is a huge, huge, huge sacrifice. It is probably one of the most misunderstood human roles ever. And ironically, there's only been leaders in business in the last maybe century or two before merchants. Like it the only other time you really had this role. Sean, you were mentioning you, whether or not you moonlight when you have second, second hustles and, and side hustles. And well, I think all of that existed a hundred years ago when you weren't sitting in a corporate job and everybody just had one thing to do. Mm -hmm. I think that was more normal, having a side hustle and a separate identity and not sitting in a cubicle and your whole job is this top big three consulting firm or big four (laughs) accounting firm or big VC name brand VC. That is not your identity. Everyone's identity is more, it's super multifaceted. Just like not everybody's identity, I'm Asian. I'm not only Asian.
2: Yeah.
0: I'm also grew up poor. I have a certain demo. I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm also considering myself an artist. I used to play a lot of sports An athlete. There's a multiple facets of everyone.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So I think you just got to get away. And really only in America, sadly, we get into that ultra identity. I don't want to say identity politics, but like you have one aspect of identity and you kind of lump everybody into a monolith. That's very, very dangerous. I'm a marketing guy. I'll mm-hmm. tell you how dangerous that is. In marketing, you talk about segmentation a lot more. In segmentation, the discipline of segmentation and marketing is a lot more about nuance. And even creating six personas is not going to create the entire market. You know that as a marketer. Mm -hmm. You just need a North Star customer. That's kind of what you call it.
1: I wonder how much of it has to do with Western culture, with individualism. This is something I I was born in China, moved here when I was seven. I've seen both worlds definitely a lot more individualistic now. I wonder how much that has to do with it, right? Like, I have to be unique.
0: Did you know that is actually the mission of our company? No. (laughs) I'm going to pull up a quote. I'm going to read this quote, and you're going to tell me if the public can guess who this is from. Okay, this is what I always do with my team. A good and just society is neither the thesis of capitalism nor is it the antithesis of communism, but a socially conscious democracy which reconciles the truths of individualism and collectivism. Who said that? I'll give a $1,000 for somebody who can name off the top of the head. I've heard this. Nobody gets this. I've heard this. Well, you can guess it's going to be easy so you don't win $1,000. but
1: I just cheated, but it's, Google says Martin Luther King. I have heard this before.
0: Martin Luther King. Junior. <laughs> people don't understand. I based our company. Right behind me, that you guys can't see, above my head is one of my favorite movies of all time when I was a kid. It's called Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. And it's a movie about, it's about race, but it's really about people who are different. And people know my company, Boba Guys, is about bridging cultures. And everybody thinks it's about, well, Asian culture, not Asian. No, 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 no. It's actually something I studied. Because when I was at Cal, I'm going to flex for Cal. Best sociology school in the world. I got trained by the best people. I just named who I learned from. And I remember this quote. And when I remember seeding this, East meets West is individualism versus collectivism. East is collectivism. It is Mm -hmm. that the hero is the community, is the group, is the village, is you think about everybody else, and you think of yourself after. Individualism, Alexis de Tocqueville talks about when he comes to America and looks at, he's the French guy who wrote Democracy in America. He says it's individualism that defines America. Even Marx Weber talks about this. And so German and French. So you are investigating what makes America America. So if you're really thinking about it, you have a hyper-individualistic culture, America, mm-hmm. yeah. combating with... A collectivist culture right now that China is a superpower, and I'm American, so I'm going to just say it. You have them going against each other. That's why Americans cannot understand what goes on in Asia. And I would like to say most Asians are trained in America that are, that are kind of in many roles. They understand the other way. It goes one way. We don't understand them. They understand us. Hmm. I go and I speak Mandarin and Cantonese. So my dad is from Guangzhou. So I speak yeah. Cantonese. My dad went to, from Guangzhou to Hong, Kong, Hong Kong. And then my mom's from Taipei, as I mentioned. So she speaks Taiwanese and Mandarin. And Taiwan itself, the colonized island by the Dutch, the Japanese, and the Chinese. So that itself, the island itself is this mixture of all these different philosophies. So Americans need to understand that. If you're a business person, you have to understand that. When I talk about this in classes, this is what I'm so passionate about. When I tell my team, it's in our manual. You think this is about boba and non-boba, about Asian drinks and non-Asian drinks. No, 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 no. This is about individualism and collectivism. This is about... When you're in a store, it's about the collective. It's about the team. But also, you're free to express yourself. I don't really have a crazy dress code. You can say what you want. You can think what you want. That's individualism. That's the beauty of American individualism. But when it's toxic, when it's hyper-individualism, you can't get people to wear masks for your neighbor. That's the best example. You won't even have high-speed rail. You won't even have trains across America and public transit, healthcare, because somebody doesn't want to pay for somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's hyper individualism and that's what's wrong with America and the future business leaders need to all get on the same page here. But here's a problem. I don't see it happening. So I'm going to control my world so I can dictate whatever values I want because it's my company. So my co-founder and I are really, really hyper philosophical, you can tell. Mm -hmm. So we have all these secret seeds that we've planted. Another Hamilton quote. You can see behind me is also like I'm a huge fan of Hamilton. In the lyric, it says, what is a legacy? A legacy is a seed you plant in a garden that you never get to see. Hmm. That means the work we're doing. Martin Luther King said this in the 60s. And him and his counterpart, Malcolm, they were always looking at what was happening in Asia. Americans don't know this, that they were always seeing the revolutions in Asia, in Southeast Asia, in Vietnam, in, in China, even in Korea. And they were seeing it was really about class. That's why he talks about was neither capitalism nor communism or individualism nor collectivism martin luther king says that so if business schools taught that and you balance a company using that dynamic i think business will transform leadership will transform i'd like to say that's kind of where i like to go and i have our first book my third book which i can talk about is likely the book i retire on and it's basically the premise this is the basic premise because i see almost no book try to go after the balance, because you have to be really American and really Asian, mm-hmm. Eastern. I rarely meet people that are like right in between. You guys know my personal Instagram handle is chameleon. Mm-hmm. It's because I've had that since my AOL screen name. <laughs> days. It was because when I was with my athlete jock crowd and my friends that were generally non-Asian, I would like coach switch. I'd talk about sports, New York Mets. I'd talk about food. I'd talk about BMX biking. That was me as a kid in Jersey, drinking high C, Kool-Aid, watching Transformers, but then at home, my parents don't speak great English. So I would watch Jackie Chan. I'd go to the rent VHS, to the Chinese video store and watch which is a gangster movie from Hong Kong gangsters. Those are about triads. But those of us who live in both cultures, especially as US and China and East and West are colliding right now, we are the middle of all of that. And coming out of Haas, It's one of the few schools that is literally the bridge between those two worlds.
1: I was just going to say, Haas, it's a very liberal school, right? Very progressive. But then at the same time, you have a business school, right? That's one of the (laughs) most interesting things that I I love about Haas. Yeah. We should have a part two. Post-pandemic, in-person recording, at a boba Guys. That's what we should do.
0: (laughs) This is an honor I never get to talk about. I never even got to drop that MLK quote ever. So this is the first time it even felt appropriate. So
1: thank you. This is what we're about, getting the real stuff. Yeah.
0: That's great. Thanks for the time. Yes. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Everyone.
1: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button in your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. You can also check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org, that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Until next time, go Bears!